Mayo Clinic presents the Always On EM podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda. Hello and welcome to the February episode of Always On EM, a podcast about emergency medicine from Mayo Clinic. My name is Venk Balamkanda, as usual, but for today, it's Venk like Vankomycin, and I'm here with my colleague and co-host Alex Finch, but we're going to call him Zosin for this chapter because this whole thing is about sepsis. And in honor of February, we have so much love for our special guest. He has a plethora of talents and experiences to his career so far, including that he is currently the staff safety officer for Mayo Clinic in Rochester. He has been one of our amazing practice chairs until recently, and he has a passion for pharmacology and sepsis for as long as I've known him. He is a passionate advocate for responsible opioid prescribing practices, and in fact, was part of an Emmy award-winning team related to the creation of opioid education. He has received or been an active member of numerous research grants, including some related to sepsis, and has parlayed those into nearly 40 peer-reviewed publications and so many other scholarly works. His record certainly goes on and on, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention that he is truly a great human at the core of it all and has a fantastic family to journey through life with. As a result, we take incredible pleasure in having Dr. Casey Clements on the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Casey. Oh, I'm super happy to be here. Dr. Clements is an incredible person. I remember the first time I met him, he's uh, a nocturnist or a former nocturnist, and I was an intern and I showed up for one of my first night shifts and he goes, I know you, you went to the best medical school. And we went to the same one together right. at the University of North Carolina. Uh, Dr. Clements is a proud Tar Heel. And I think people take on roles in your mind. And uh, Dr. Clements to me will always be our honored practice chair during COVID. It's somebody who every day sat down and interpreted the literature and then would send us this email so we made it required reading for the residency. We were like, forget everything else. Like, you don't have to read the textbook. But you, every night you stop and you read this email and it discussed what PPE you wear and, kind of, and the evidence behind it. And that was the newsletter that got me through one of the scariest times in my life. And, uh, and, and got it's, the whole it's just, department through. It got the whole department through. And it's just, uh, to me, uh, Casey is this trusted voice in my life that uh, is thoughtful, caring, and and there for us. An exceptional leader. Yeah. And uh, I want to get this in writing for my wife. <laughs> as it I feel like when somebody gives you a nice introduction like this, you have to back it up with something else in the very Midwest way. I want everybody to know that I did get a D in third grade math. <laughs> <laughs> we won't go back that. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, that's we good. won't go back to third grade, but I love that. I am realizing in preparation for this episode, I am woefully behind in understanding where we are with what is sepsis. Can we start at the very beginning? What is sepsis in your mind? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's something that we don't talk about. And, and you're not alone in being behind on it. I think, you know, in, in 2014, we had some landmark studies come out. And um, a, a lot of what they advocated for was called usual care. Right. And so we I'm not going to say we stopped thinking about sepsis quite as aggressively as we did before that. But it did uh, it did take a little bit more of a backseat because it kind of uh, made us think, oh, well, we can we can do whatever we want. But usual care is not no care. And, and it does require some 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 careful um, work and, and how we take care of our patients. So, yeah, I agree. Let's take a step step back. So from time immemorial. Um, people have died from infections. And the way that they die from infections is, is not always from just that, you know, bacteria eating away their body. Um, but a lot of the time, it's a dysregulation of their inflammatory response to that infection, which leads to essentially multi-organ failure and death through a number of different mechanisms. So sepsis is a syndrome. It's a syndrome of what happens when that dysregulation of inflammation and infection happens in the body. Um, that leads to a number of different physiologic processes uh, culminating in eventually 
shock, multi-organ failure, and death. Um, but it has been going on forever. I know that there's a, uh, a quote from Machiavelli uh, way back in 1532, which said, Hectic fever at its inception is difficult to recognize but easy to treat. But left untended, it becomes easy to recognize but difficult to treat. And I, I take that as a, uh, like, this is not a new problem, even though modern sepsis and its treatment is really only approaching 30 years old. That is a great quote. I love the term hectic fever. Do you write that in your differentials? No, but the nomenclature behind sepsis is actually really interesting. You know, so uh, we used to say septicemia. We used to yeah. say a number of different terms for sepsis. And um, up until a consensus conference um, in 1991, we didn't really have um, definitions of what is sepsis. So that's why I said, like, sepsis has just turned 30 years old. Um, that, that consensus conference was... a, a a meeting between the American Academy of Chest Physicians and the Society for Critical Care Medicine, and they decided on what what was the definition of sepsis, and it defined sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock, and this idea of SIRS. I'm so glad that other people are admitting uh, difficulty with what this diagnosis is, but also conceptualizing it, because I remember being a med student on an EM rotation, and I had my my little book, and there was ACS. Made sense, right? Like a coronary artery, I could see it getting narrow, causing the problem. And then sepsis, at first I thought what we're talking about is bacteremia. There's bacteria in the blood. But then somebody said, well, maybe that's not exactly what it is. It's an inflammatory response. And then I was totally lost. You know, I was like, well, well you know, cytokines? Like what, what is exactly going on here? And you brought up the SERS criteria. Um, and I think that was the first thing I was able to root into because you know, there would be screening labs and I would say, okay, well now I have the, the white blood cell count. I can start to work through this problem to better understand the diagnosis. And so you describe this 1990 conference and then we have the SERS criteria. What kind of came from there? Yeah. So we owe a lot to a lot of, you know, researchers and forefathers in the field of sepsis. And um, at that time, emergency medicine, and even now, emergency medicine has not always been at the forefront of um, being able to lay out these definitions and recommendations and guidelines. Um, so back in after that 1991 consensus conference, they defined this idea of SIRS, or Systemic Inflammatory Response Syndrome. Uh, and then they took that uh, with a guy named Roger Bone, who was a physician, and he defined what was this idea of uh, sepsis, sort of version one, uh, which said that if you have the systemic inflammatory response symptoms, which are sort of tachycardia or um, tachypnea, signs that you have some sort of physiologic dysfunction and you have an infection, that that would be sepsis. Now, SIRS is by no means specific to infection. Lots of things cause systemic inflammatory responses. So trauma and burns, pancreatitis, classic examples for things that cause SIRS that aren't necessarily infection. But when you have those two things together, that was what we considered, quote, sepsis, unquote. Now, the, those of you who have done this for a while, those of you listening probably already can see in your mind why that may be a problem, right? So if I have influenza and I walk up a flight of stairs, well, yeah, I'm going to have fever, I'm going to have tachycardia, and I have an infection, I have sepsis. But that's not really clinically relevant sepsis, which they appreciated right from the very beginning because they said, you know, this, what we need is to define severe sepsis. And so severe sepsis is defined as having that SIRS and infection plus some evidence of end organ dysfunction or hypotension. Uh, and so that was defined right from the get-go with Dr. Bone uh, up front. That was what we sort of were operating on for quite some time. Uh, that was international sepsis definition one. So a couple of years later, uh, they went back and said, well, we don't really understand what is end organ dysfunction. Can we define this more clearly? And so in 2003, they published updated definitions, this we would call International Sepsis Definition 2. And really the only difference between 1 and 2 um, from a diagnostic standpoint is they put together a table of what is end organ dysfunction, which on paper looks good. 
but it's not really practically usable because it includes everything. It's this huge, <laughs> it's this huge list. Um, it's things like edema or decreased bowel sounds uh, count as end organ dysfunction. And we know, and as emergency physicians, that that's not really something that we're, we're, <laughs> we consider to be life-threatening illness. And so it still was a little bit cloudy at that point on uh, how you really defined end organ dysfunction and severe sepsis. Now, septic shock in that continuum of illness is if you have hypotension uh, or really a lactate greater than four, and I'm sure we'll talk more about lactate, uh, and despite giving fluid, you're still hypotensive, uh, then you would be considered to have septic shock. So this, right. is, this is the era of the SERS criteria. Yeah, and, and the era of the SERS criteria still continues. Okay. So. Oh, good. I believe. I, because I, I, I pull, that's how I perceive this disease process in a lot of ways, and, and we'll talk more about that, but I'm glad that you're telling me I haven't aged out of aged out of this at least not completely yeah not completely so, yeah i think there certainly are people who feel like sirs should be uh, dead and buried okay um but they're not and and there's some reasons for that let's finish out kind of the story of international consensus definitions of sepsis I love it. so uh we had international you know one back in the day uh, and two was to clarify sort of end organ dysfunction Sepsis 3.0, let's call it, um, really was released in, in, in 2016, so not that long ago. And the intent was to clarify the problems that I said before. How do you, you can't really define end organ dysfunction on a simple table. You can't really uh, put this into a box and have it make sense and be important to the patient. And so uh, what Merv Singer, the guy who made, uh, was the primary author and, and architect of the sepsis 3 definition said is, is that sepsis 3 is to, is to make sepsis what every intern knows that it is. Like you, you <laughs> see it great. in the, oh, that's sepsis. <laughs> he, he defined it as infection with badness, which I think as an ER doc, we can kind of, we like that. Right. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it did take a huge left turn compared to what we'd done in the past. And you mentioned SIRS before, kind of, is it dead, is it not dead? Um, I, I think that the sepsis 3 definition would prefer that it kind of be dead um, because they took it out. What they said at this, uh, at this point was if you have an infection and you have signs of critical illness, and what they did is they utilized critical illness scoring measures that actually came out of that 1991 consensus conference because they called for the creation of these prognostic measures, one of which is SOFA, um, which is the uh, sequential organ failure assessment. It's really an ICU measurement because it relies on things like urine output and stuff that we don't always measure easily in the ED. Casey just mentioned the SOFA score, which originally stood for Sepsis-Related Organ Failure Assessment Score, and it was created by Dr. Jean-Louis Vincent, an intensivist from the University of Brussels, along with the Working Group on Sepsis-Related Problems within the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine back in 1996. After that, it was validated several times and then used to predict mortality and then mortality from other conditions outside of sepsis. We are including the original reference as well as a few validation and evolution papers in the show notes. Along this journey of use and repurpose, it seems that the acronym was reattributed to what Casey now mentions, the Sequential Organ Failure Assessment Score. The score itself evaluates the patient using PAO2, FIO2, the need for positive pressure mechanical ventilation, platelet count as a marker for coagulation, Glasgow Coma Scale, bilirubin as a marker for liver function, mean arterial pressure or the need for vasopressor medications, creatinine or urine output. This yields a score where zero to one portends essentially zero mortality through to greater than 14, which portends a 90 to 95% mortality. Okay, please continue, Casey. And so what sepsis three said was, is that if you have an elevated SOFA score, and a infection, then we have what we would consider to be a clinically significant sepsis. It's still not perfect though. And, and they realized that from the beginning. So with the publication of that sepsis three definition, they included this thing that they call QSOFA, which was to try to translate 
the sofa score to something that would be usable. Uh, the way that I heard it defined by the team was uh, on the floor of New York Presbyterian Hospital and in the jungles of the Amazon in Brazil. So it can't rely or require any lab testing. It can't require any complicated evaluation and management. It should be something that everybody has access to. The group that created this um, was partly centered out of Pittsburgh. They started with several different clinical criteria, and they whittled it down and whittled it down to get to as few as they could that they felt captured a clinically significant prognostic system of outcomes. And so they settled on three that, that they would consider to be important for, um, for, for sepsis. And, and this is if you have altered mental status, a fast respiratory rate, or low blood pressure. And if you have one of those, generally your in-hospital mortality is going to be low in the 1% to 2% range. If you have two of them, it jumps up to about 8%. Which, you know, when we think about outcomes for things that we're used to, like ST elevation, myocardial infarction, I mean, we're up in that range if you have two Q-SOFA and an infection. And then if you have greater than three, or you have three, uh, they essentially said that you have a 20% mortality, potentially in hospital. So big jumps. And, and it makes sense why you would want to do this, because... SIRS was intended to be sensitive but not specific, and this is intended to sort of uh, be more specific for outcomes. The problem is, is that it's not really about recognition of illness. So we lose something in moving from sepsis definition two to sepsis definition three. We add risk stratification, but we kind of compromise recognition. And we know that early recognition and, um, and treatment of sepsis is what matters. Um, in addition to that, you can have an infection and have SOFA or Q-SOFA be elevated for other chronic illness reasons or other coincident illness reasons that make it a little bit complicated, right? So let's say you have a liver failure patient. A liver failure patient may have a, a Q-SOFA of three all the time because they have low blood pressures, they breathe quickly because they have ascites, and they may be altered from their encephalopathy. And if they get an infection, immediately have like sepsis, right? So it, none of these systems are perfect, and we're still struggling with how to blend those two. So just to repeat back, the international consensus definition for sepsis originated with infection and SIRS. It then evolved into the concept of end organ dysfunction with the second international consensus definition. And the third one tried to articulate what is end organ dysfunction using outcome scoring systems from the ICU. Am I understanding that correctly? Sort of. I think end organ dysfunction has been listed all the way since the beginning. It just wasn't as clearly defined in one, and okay. that was sort of the intent of clarifying within two. Okay. Um, I think that the SOFA and QSOFA is to exactly like you say, try to get the sense of what is critical illness for these folks. It doesn't capture all end organ dysfunction. I mean, you, you didn't hear anything about kidney function in there. No. But we know that acute kidney injury is hugely important in sepsis. Absolutely. Um, and so it, it, we, in my own practice, I still blend these things. So I still pay attention to SERS criteria, and, and we kind of have to because they are still used in some publicly reported metrics. Um, for recognition... And then when I sort of have the diagnosis in my head that ah, I think this person is septic, then I'm going to be considering what is their SOFA or QSOFA score to try to have a prognostic sense of how this person is going to do. What are they going to require? Are we going to be aggressive with you know critical care and ICU uh, stays, or is this somebody that we think ah, actually they're they're going to be okay? So you're using the SERS criteria to help with establishing a diagnosis, and then using the SOFA QSOFA in establishing a prognosis. Exactly, it's recognition of illness um, using things like SIRS or, and, and to be honest, lab testing as well and, and things that we uh, incorporate into our modern practice of emergency medicine. And then QSOFA is really, uh, or SOFA uh, are really around um, risk stratification. I think I'm starting to That's incredibly helpful. what this is. Yeah. yeah. How did SIRS perform when we used it? I think that's a really interesting point. So, yeah. you know, SERS was built to be sensitive, 
so it's supposed to capture everybody, right? Like I, I gave you the example of if you have influenza and walk up a flight of stairs, you have sepsis, according to, to SIRS. Right. Um, but it turns out that it was imperfect as well. So SIRS was meant to be sensitive, but there are a, a significant number of people who don't always have two SIRS early on in a disease illness uh, to say that they that they would have had, quote, sepsis, unquote, and they still can get critically ill and have bad outcomes. That was a bit of a revelation sort of uh, in uh, the time before sepsis 3 came out. I'm struck by how difficult it seems to have a set of usable criteria to establish the diagnosis of clinically relevant sepsis without capturing people who have, as you mentioned, the often self-limiting conditions like influenza, but do have vital sign abnormalities. To underscore how difficult this is, in 2021, the IDSA, or Infectious Diseases Society of America, published a position paper where they were suggesting it may be better for us to stop focusing on diagnosing sepsis and protocolizing that treatment, but rather focus more attention on septic shock and standardizing the care of that condition. And their main concern seemed to be about overdiagnosis of sepsis and the aggressive antibiotic administration that it leads to. What do you think of that? Yeah, and uh, I share some concerns. Uh, I think that where you fit antibiotic stewardship into the treatment of septic patients continues to be an unknown a bit, uh, an outstanding question. Um, I can tell you that for the critically ill, however we're going to define those, whether it's shock or someone who's got kidney injury or altered mental status, I mean, whatever you pick as your definition for critical illness, uh, antibiotic stewardship really shouldn't play into our decisions in the moment uh, because we know that broad-spectrum antibiotics, and as quick as they can be delivered, it is hugely impactful on the patient's outcome. And so... Certainly, we have competing responsibilities of antibiotic stewardship, but once you make that idea of, I'm worried about this person, I think that they may have sepsis, regardless of quality measures. And I agree with the IDSA that I think we're, especially this year, we're going to start giving a lot more antibiotics to people that have what we would consider, quote, mild, unquote, sepsis by consensus definition two, uh, which is a, a weird a uh, weird definition to make mild sepsis. Uh, they're going to get a lot of antibiotics. I You've used a, a several key terms, and the narrative, the story of the interna international consensus definition is really helpful. I'm seeing this evolution in in this this somewhat nebulous thing to me. So now I'm, I'm seeing it come in a little bit more clearly and some of the tools that I use. Now I understand I'm using SIRS or, uh, and some of my biomarkers to get to my diagnosis, and then SOFA or QSOFA to prognosticate. But you, in the IDSA guideline, they talked about SEP, um, and I've heard other terms like early goal-directed therapy. Where does that fall in, in, in this narrative? Yeah, and it's a, it's, this is a great conversation, and I love it. Um, in parallel to the definition of sepsis evolving over time, the treatment of sepsis has evolved as well. Uh, and many of our listeners who have been practicing for more than a couple of years, so I'll say, um, we grew up in the era of early goal-directed therapy. So in 2001, uh, Dr. Emanuel Rivers from Henry Ford published a landmark paper, which was a single-center study, looking at bundled care for sepsis, uh, where a stepwise approach was used uh, to treat with uh, fluid, if you have sort of hypotension, uh, or a surrogate for hypotension, central venous pressure, um, to use vasoactive agents if you were still in shock at that point, uh, and to monitor oxygen delivery to the tissues through something called SCVO2 in order to uh, really achieve an outcome. And it was hugely successful. Prior to early goal-directed therapy, when we're talking about absolute mortality benefits of treatment in sepsis in the literature, we're talking single-digit change. And with early goal-directed therapy, they had an absolute mortality benefit of like 16%. So it was massive. Um, and when that came out, people got really excited. First of all, from a physician and patient standpoint on an individual patient level, it's pretty hard to do early goal-directed therapy. Every patient needs a central line, and not just a central line, but a central line that sometimes can measure SCVO2 and 
it's uh it, those those procedure logs were ro- were robust. I yeah. say. <laughs> it was a great time for Casey and I to be arrested. It was. We we did a lot of logs. <laughs> I remember those ca- Edwards catheters and hooking them up to the the monitoring equipment. But the uh, uh, so after early goal directed therapy came out, people got really excited. They said, "Finally, we have an answer for sepsis. This you know disease from time immemorial that I was talking about." Um, because the absolute mortality on the control arm of early goal directed therapy is 46.5%. That's, I mean, like the, the sepsis at that time was highly, highly deadly. Uh, and, and certainly that was higher than some other studies, but it was high everywhere. Right. So, with that result of now we have something that we can do, um, a groups got together uh, from the Society for Critical Care Medicine, the European Society of Intensive Care Medicine, and the International Sepsis Forum, and they created a sort of quality improvement group called the Surviving Sepsis Campaign. Uh, and in October of 2002, um, so after early goal-directed therapy was published, they drafted this thing called the Barcelona Declaration, which said we're going to we're going to reduce sepsis mortality by 25 percent in five years by getting everybody to do early goal directed therapy. And I'm sure I know uh, Vank and I remember, but this was like a huge thing. Uh, they would they would round and say, "Did your patient get their uh, SCVO2 monitor? You know, get corrected when did, did we giving dibutamine to do that? Did they did we transfuse people to, transfuse people to a hemoglobin of 10 at that time?" Uh, and that remained the standard of care for 13, 14 years because we couldn't really figure out how to unbundle the bundle. When you, when you use an all or none bundle, it's, uh, it's restrictive to say, well, which, what are the things that we're doing that were effective and what are the things that we're doing that maybe aren't quite as important? To follow up on the Barcelona Declaration by the Surviving Sepsis Campaign, this was published in October 2002 and had six key aims to achieve the reduced mortality goal that Casey mentions. First, it was to increase awareness of the problem. And second, to improve upon our ability to diagnose sepsis early and accurately by having a clear and clinically relevant definition of sepsis. Third, increase the use of appropriate treatments and procedures. Fourth, to promote education on all the aspects related to sepsis care. Fifth, to promote or provide a framework for post-ICU counseling for sepsis patients. And sixth, or lastly, to promote the development of clear guidelines by countries across the globe that promote the best practices for sepsis care. The international consensus definition defines the diagnosis, and then we have the surviving sepsis campaign which is a, a group that then took things like early goal-directed therapy and uh, tried to spread the wealth. And, and it was a campaign to increase utilization of these bundles. Okay. And it still is. Yep. So Surviving Sepsis Campaign has gone through iterations just like the definition has. So 2002, it was early goal-directed therapy, and that lasted for a really long time. 2012 rolls around and they try to clarify what needs to be done early in sepsis treatment. Um, they ha- we have some additional evidence related to timing of antibiotics, for example. And so they start adding in time frames where things need to be done. So for sepsis patients, you, this is where the idea of uh, a certain amount of fluid per kilogram should be administered. Uh, to patients. And it was pretty controversial because there wasn't a ton of evidence behind it. But again, this surviving sepsis campaign is, uh, is a quality group, essentially, to try to get um, standardized care and to get it to be done around the world. Uh, and how much evidence they take into account for those guidelines varied somewhat for the different interventions. And they continued to make guidelines, including in recent years, some of you may remember this idea of uh, proposing a one-hour bundle so in 2012, they had a three-hour bundle, and if three hours is good, one hour must be better. Uh, and so they proposed that we do everything as far as antibiotics and fluids, et cetera, within an hour of identifying sepsis, um, which was a bit aggressive. Um, our professional organizations, the American College of Emergency Physicians, as well as this Society for Critical Care Me- Medicine, they released statements saying, like, whoa, pump the brakes. Uh, we could do some harm to people if we're like throwing everything at them within an hour. And so those guidelines were not really, um, we're not doing that as a standard of care right now, but uh, they they still try. 
All right. We we have this definition group, and then we have the surviving sepsis group that's telling us what we're going to do. And this is the 30 cc's per kilo. That, that's kind of what we're talking about is this campaign. What what are these quality metrics? Right. So now we're going to back up again in parallel because all this stuff is happening at the same time. But after early goal-directed therapy came out, um, Dr. Emmanuel Rivers, who, you know, I, we give early goal-directed therapy a lot of flack, right, you know, in modern times. But actually, it, it was a huge step forward. And, and I, I think we owe Dr. Rivers a huge debt of gratitude for getting us to think about this in an aggressive way. It was uh, really empowering. I, yeah. I don't know how you felt that here's something that we can actually do in a sequence, and we're going to see a great benefit for our patients. Right. So um, after early goal-directed therapy came out, then uh, Dr. Rivers at Henry Ford proposed uh, saying, well, this could be a quality metric for us. And so through the National Quality Forum, they created a draft quality metric that's called O500. And uh, the idea was initially it was early goal-directed therapy. It was exactly what Dr. Rivers had done in his paper. And so they said, maybe we should make every uh, you know, hospital report how they're doing on sepsis through their early goal-directed therapy. And that came up for a, a vote with the draft metric. Is the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services going to adopt that as a publicly reported metric in 2008? And it was voted down. They said, no, we're not going to do that. Uh, but a couple of years later, something happens, which we call the Affordable Care Act, and it came back up in 2013, and um, it, it was um, going to be approved. And it, it was eventually approved by an 11 to 7 vote. Um, but it wasn't exactly early goal-directed therapy anymore because at that time, three landmark studies, the ARISE study, the PROMISE study, and the PROCESS trial were wrapping up. And those researchers kind of had a sense of what within the early goal-directed bundle was necessary and what maybe wasn't so necessary, that, that problem I described before. We're unbundling the bundle. We're unbundling We're the bundle. Um, and so in 2013, before the publication of those trials, those researchers sort of met with the folks working on O500 uh, and uh, presumably with Dr. Rivers and said, hey, pump the brakes here for a second. Maybe everybody doesn't need a central line because SCVO2 monitoring turns out not to be really that important in the bundle. Mm. And uh, the idea of giving people fluid to a central venous pressure, while it was really important in 2001, it's really what gave us permission to give people five and six liters of fluid, which before then would never have been something we would have done. Um, in 2013, 2014, the standard of care was to do this. We feel a lot more comfortable giving fluid at this point. And so there was a compromise. And that compromise was sort of what could we do instead of a central line in these patients in order to assess fluid status? And, and for those of you who know about the metric as it stands today, there's uh, some physical exam requirements potentially. You can use ultrasound or you can use some other surrogate markers for doing that. Um, and, and that was a compromise that wasn't really based on any evidence that I'm aware of. At the same time, they said, well, um, you know, lactate is really important for looking at how is the tissues doing metabolically. What if we also said that if the lactate was a little bit elevated, we'd recheck it. And there's no evidence behind that whatsoever <laughs> when this came out. So these compromises go into place right at the time that this O500 metric is voted in uh, to the to the CMS uh, quality metrics as what was then known as SEP1, um, which began, you know, we began doing a couple of years later and began being publicly reported in 2017. Just so I understand. So when we say a, it is a quality metric, that means that m my hospital, wherever our listeners are, they have this information and they have to report it to the federal government. Right. That's what we're saying. Yep. If OK. They're, if they're, they have to if they are accepting funds uh, on Medicare and Medicaid patients. Is, is that understanding correct? That's exactly right. OK. So if I want access to those funds, I have to report this metric. And for SEP1, it is it is these questions of I gave some fluids and I checked a lactate kind of deal. 
<laughs> so here no. is where it gets a little complicated, and the story gets even more sorted. So okay. I, I love this. So the intent of SEP1 is very good, right? It's, so it says for severely septic or septic shock patients, and this is, again, SERS-based, that we should obtain blood cultures, check a lactate, give broad-spectrum antibiotics, and if the patient is hypotensive or has a lactate greater than four, we need to give them fluid. That makes sense, right? That's good quality emergency care. In the first this three hours. Right. In the first three hours. Yeah. Uh, and there's a few other things in there, too. You have to recheck the lactate if it's over two. And, um, yeah, if the patient's in shock after fluid, you have to start a vasopressor. Now, that sounds very simple. But this is the federal government that we're talking about. So what CMS did is they took what I just described in, you know, four-sentence fragments. And they, they hired two CMS contractors, the Mathematica Policy Research Group and Telogen, who then turned that into a 51-page specification manual and a 393-page guide for quality abstractors to be able to, to determine if we were going to meet or fail this all-or-none metric. And it, it's not just four things that these quality abstractors have to look at. It's well, when it came out, I think it was 64 when it started. And the quality of structures would take about two hours per chart to determine if we were if we met this or not. And it's a little bit flawed for a lot of reasons. One of those is it took me some time to figure out who even falls into this metric. It's in the it's in the appendix, which essentially is at the discharge from the hospital, they have a diagnosis essentially of sepsis. And then they look back for when that sepsis became clear. So if you're in the emergency department, you're working, somebody had a high heart rate, they had a little bit of high you know, um, respiratory rate because they're in pain from their kidney stone. Um, if we miss the infection in that kidney stone, you're gonna fail the metric. And I think that's reasonable to a point, but it's really, really complicated and, and we're being judged in the retrospectoscope. What if somebody was admitted for a broken leg and then but then when they were discharged they had developed an infection in the hospital is it all all there yep so what the quality abstractors job is is to go back and see when is the time when that illness first manifests okay and that that start time has been a point of a lot of discussion because there was a lot of advocates that that should be when you show up to the hospital but as you just said it's the, the care is longitudinal and it takes time. And so that's, you can't really do that. And so now it's when that illness started to manifest. Okay. So that's the concept of SEP1. So that's a quality metric distinct from the definition, distinct from the surviving sepsis campaign. And then there's a couple SEPs, right? Or is that an iterative process? No, SEP1 is stuck around. It's okay. been, it has been modified a little bit, thankfully. Um, so CMS has appreciated that really not every person can tolerate 30 milliliters per kilogram of fluid. And, and so if we document in exactly the right way, with exactly the right verbiage, and say how much fluid we are going to give and why, we don't necessarily need to give that 30 milliliters per kilogram uh, to, to patients that couldn't tolerate it. What if I turn away the two-hour lactate? No. Oh. Don't do it that <laughs> Don't ever turn away the, the redraw on the lactate. It's over two on okay. the first one. Don't ever turn away the... Uh, uh, just, just don't do it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Okay, let's review. There are three simultaneous movements that are related and fueling each other while being distinct. There are three international consensus conferences that have progressively sought to clarify the criteria for diagnosing sepsis. There's also the surviving sepsis campaign, which is iteratively putting forth a global charge to elevate sepsis care based on the evolving definitions and best practices that are being uncovered. And finally, in the United States, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, in partnership with the National Quality Forum, has released the SEP1 bundle, which is a quality measure that is required for hospitals to get paid if the hospital is receiving money from the federal government for the care provided to Medicare patients. Basically, to get paid, you have to report this quality data back to the government. I want to highlight that sometimes I've heard people talk about SEP2 and SEP3. This always confuses me into thinking that there are additional quality measures from CMS and the Quality Forum, but there really aren't. 
These are most often referring to the iterations of the diagnostic standards from the international consensus conferences. So for example, the third conference where the QSOFA and SOFA score is emphasized has its consensus statement published in JAMA 2016, and the title ends with parentheses sepsis hyphen three and parenthesis in the name. So again, to be clear, SEP1 is the quality measure. The other SEP or sepsis numbers that some people refer to, it is a confusing nomenclature, and usually they're referring to the international consensus definition iterations. Right. So Okay, I'm getting there. You mentioned that's how we get paid. So that's a new thing. Okay. A very new thing. So sort of hot off the press. Tell me more about that. Yeah. So in the fall of 2023, uh, CMS said, okay, we've had this publicly reported metric, SEP1, and we've had that since, well, we've been reporting it since 2015. It's been publicly available since 2018. So you can go, anybody can go to a website called Hospital Compare, and they can see how the that, that hospital did on SEP1 for a small subset of patients that are uh, adjudicated by quality abstractors. And when I say small subset, so we're here at Mayo Clinic, we have a big hospital, um, we have hundreds of patients a month with sepsis in our hospital. Um, CMS wants us to give them 20 patients that are randomly chosen to see how we did. So that, that 20 patients is luck of the draw, whether that really represents what our, our quality of sepsis care is. So we've been publicly reporting this for several years. Now the difference is, is in uh, the fall or end of August in 2023, CMS then said, well, we're going to add SEP1 to our value-based purchasing program within the safety domain. So what's that mean? Well, value-based purchasing um, hasn't traditionally really affected the emergency department very much, but it's very important to the hospitals. So there are a, ser a series of quality metrics that if we do well on them, we get paid a little bit more for the care of our Medicare and Medicaid patients. And if we do poorly on them, we get paid a little bit less. So from a CMS perspective, it's free to them because it's essentially spreading money around. So it's taking hot money from the hospitals that are doing poorly and it's giving them to the hospitals that are doing well. Well, uh, traditional measures in that are things like catheter-associated urinary infection or central line uh, bloodstream infections, um, which while it's important to us and we have some role in stewardship of not putting catheters in people who don't need them, et cetera, like we're not the primarily responsible group for m most of value-based purchasing metrics. But for SEP1, we're like 90% of it. So um, the fact that they decided to add this is a big deal to emergency departments. I'm feeling like the eye of Sauron has like turned to me. <laughs> I, I think that's a really apt description. Uh, when it's really going to turn to us, though, yeah. and this is this is what we need to know, is in 2026. So why is it 2026? So the way that value-based purchasing works is is they take a baseline measurement of how everybody's doing. That's passed. Then they take uh, essentially a reporting year. And how we perform within that reporting year is how we're going to get paid in a subsequent fiscal year. And so we're going to get paid in 2026 based on how we're performing on SEP1 in calendar year 2024. So starting now January 1, we're on the hook for this. And I can tell you that the hospitals are going to, in two years from now, if they're not getting paid because we didn't do very well on SEP1, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be potentially challenging. So this is something that we're dedicating a lot of effort to, to figure out how do we implement or sort of better, I won't say chase, but how do we better uh, meet SEP1's expectations while we're still having a mind towards what's the best thing for the patient. So, you know, you can meet 100% of SEP1 on, on sepsis patients if everybody who comes in gets 30 cc's per kilo and, uh, uh, you know, five grams of gorillacillin. Um, but I don't recommend that everybody do that because you're going to harm people, right? So uh, we have to be judicious in how we do this. Uh, and CMS has added some tools for us to be able to, um, to do that a little bit more judiciously. But 100% compliance with SEP1 is probably not a good thing. Uh, it's, we're probably looking for a success rate um, in the 75 to 80% range. And so to hit that mark, we need to be thinking about patients from the original definition because that's how CMS is looking at it, 
which includes SIRS, if I'm understanding correctly. Absolutely. And then we are thinking in the first three hours that we are getting a lactate blood cultures giving broad-spectrum antibiotics. If that lactate is elevated or they're hypotensive, giving fluids at 30 cc's per kilogram. Lactate of four. Lactate of four, mm-hmm. yep. If it's over two, they need a recheck. In our case, we're going to do it for everybody. <laughs> no, it's it's if it's over two. Okay, if it's over two. And then uh, if they were hypotensive or showing signs of shock, then they need a, reassessed, a reassessment of volume status within six hours as well. Exactly. The initial tests have to be done in the first three hours. The volume and reassessment of volume status in six hours, if I remember correctly. Is that right? That's correct. And the volume assessment can take place at any time after the fluid has started. Um, So you don't have to wait two hours to do the volume reassessment. So if the person's gotten a liter of fluid and you're like, let's see how they're doing, you can document that fluid assessment at that point. Perfect. This is definitely, this is really helping me better perceive all of this. Um, Vank, all the care you've described sounds great. Uh, I, I imagine I'm doing that. Well, I give great care. Yeah, well, I, I agree. <laughs> Humble, too. But I suspect that maybe my chart isn't reflecting this, or maybe I'm missing something. What are what are the, the common errors that you're seeing? Yeah, so that's a great question. And again, part of that gets back to this idea that there's a 393 page specification manual for this for this metric but um, so there are some common pitfalls and there are some things that people need to be aware of so I told you CMS gave us permission not to give fluid to some people if we didn't think it was safe but the rules around what that has to say in our note is extremely specific we have to say why we're not giving that fluid what condition the patient has that would preclude that um, and then how much fluid we are going to give Um, And if you don't have everything in the right spot, it's still a fail. The other thing that they've done is, uh, you know, is do we use actual body weight or ideal body weight or adjusted body weight? And um, there's a lot of controversy around that. So, you know, we live in the United States of America in 2024 and actual body weight, you know, that's a lot of fluid for some people. Um, and, and what CMS said was, we understand that, but it's pretty difficult to say that ideal is enough. And so what they say uh, is you can give, you have to give actual body weight unless their BMI is over 30 and then you can give ideal body weight. But again, we have to document that. So we have to document and the BMI has to be in the note, which is not something that we're used to documenting. We might just say, we're going to do this based on ideal body weight. Nope fails it needs to be uh it needs to be documented what the bmi is and and then how much fluid we're going to give based on what weight measurement we're doing um so that's a couple of pitfalls from a physician perspective of things that i see commonly missed Um, i clarify one of those things so uh is there an ef i i know i'm imagining for a common one is my patient has heart failure i don't want to give them 30 cc's per kilo is there anything like that like is it an EF of 50, you know, 40, is there a number or I'm just saying they have a history of heart failure and their BMI is 30. So I'm deciding clinically what I'm going to so do. So your question is really good. Okay. The idea. That means that, that, that's, but there's always, there's a, a your question is good, <laughs> but this, this is like somebody's breaking up with me. So <laughs> it's not you. It's me. It's, it's, it's not me. It's not me. It's not you. It's CMS. <laughs> No, so it's uh, your question is good, except for the f- fact that we're talking about a metric here, okay. uh, which it, it, and and that metric does not necessarily translate into how much fluid that patient actually needs. So the question of should heart failure patients actually get thirty cc's per kilo or not is a separate question than than what we're doing to make sure that we're meeting the metric and and. I'll tell you, I'm I'm fluid aggressive, so uh, uh, I there's some evidence that if you don't give the 30 cc's per kilo, that patients actually have a higher rate of respiratory failure from their sepsis than they would from the from the fluid. Interesting. In, in end stage renal disease, same thing. If somebody has dialysis dependent and truly has a distributive septic shock, they probably still need the fluid. After the conversation with Casey, I went to find any summaries of the evidence 
so systematic reviews and meta-analyses, examining the issue of heart failure and renal failure patients in sepsis. I came across one in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine in 2022 by Dr. Madeline Pence as the lead author called Outcomes of CMS-Mandated Fluid Administration Among Fluid-Overloaded Patients with Sepsis, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. I have to give a shout out to my friend, Dr. Ali Pormand, as the mentor author on this paper. I promise I wasn't cherry picking. It just happened by coincidence. In any case, this author group searched PubMed and Scopus databases through November 5th, 2021, with numerous MeSH terms, including sepsis, fluid therapy, heart failure, renal insufficiency, kidney failure, and many more. They included any article that compared non-aggressive fluid therapy to aggressive fluid therapy for patients with a diagnosis of CHF or end-stage renal disease, or if the provider caring for the patient documented hypervolemia prior to the diagnosis of septic shock. They identified 304 papers, which they then screened for duplicates, non-English language, case reports, editorials, etc., and that left them with 15 papers. These were then analyzed with full-text review by the author group, and they subsequently excluded 10 more because they didn't have the desired patients, the desired interventions, or the outcomes that were being studied for this meta-analysis. This left them with five papers included in their analysis. All five were retrospective observational studies, so lower quality studies on the hierarchy pyramid at face value, though I did not go back and review each one individually myself. The author group, though, did evaluate the quality of each study using the Newcastle-Ottawa scale to assess observational studies' quality, and they were all felt to be high-quality observational studies. In total, this yielded 5,804 patients including, included in the meta-analysis. 5,260 received non-aggressive fluid resuscitation, basically under 30 per kilo. This is roughly 90% of the patients. 10% of the patients, or 544, received at least 20 cc's per kilogram. And I don't really know how the author group decided to handle the overlap between receiving more than 20 but under 30 per kilo. Um, that's not really articulated here, but in general, what they're saying is that over 20 per kilo was categorized as aggressive fluid therapy, under 30 per kilo was categorized as non-aggressive fluid therapy. When looking at all-cause mortality, the non-aggressive fluid group had a 2% mortality compared with 12% in the aggressive fluid group. The odds ratio for mortality in the aggressive fluid group was 1.42, though the 95% confidence interval crosses 1 as it goes from 0.88 to 2.3. Similarly, more patients, in the, more patients in the aggressive fluid group needed mechanical ventilation. The forest plot for this meta-analysis is worth looking at if you're into that kind of thing, of course. Four of the five studies have confidence intervals that cross 1, and by a significant margin. The one study that is the outlier brought the majority of the patients to the meta-analysis and also showed the greatest mortality difference between the aggressive and non-aggressive fluid groups. The other four were much more comparable mortalities. The author group concludes that from the data they reviewed, an aggressive fluid strategy does not cause statistically significant mortality difference in volume overloaded patients but there was a tendency or a trend towards that. They do recognize that the available evidence was not the best and not voluminous, and so further evidence would be great to be able to fuel a more confident understanding moving forward. My search only found one other meta-analysis, and this is from Dr. Zadeh, hopefully I'm pronouncing that right, and their research team, entitled Guideline-Based and Restricted Fluid Resuscitation Strategy in Sepsis Patients with Heart Failure, a systematic review and meta-analysis also published in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine, but slightly more recently as this was 2023. The citations for both papers are in the show notes. This author group set out to investigate if a restricted fluid strategy, in other words, less than 30 cc's per kilogram of IV crystalloid in the first three hours, affects in-hospital mortality compared with the surviving sepsis campaign recommendation of 30 milliliters per kilogram within the first three hours. They searched Embase, 
PubMed, and Scopus through March 7th, 2023, and used keywords including, but not limited to, heart failure, congestive heart failure, heart decompensation, cardiac failure, and more. They also included only English studies from 2016 so that the definition of sepsis would be similar amongst studies, and the patients had to have a history of heart failure or the study had to report a subgroup of patients with a history of heart failure. Their search yielded just over 26,000 records, and removal of duplicates dropped this to about 12,500. Further evaluation for editorials, irrelevant articles, case reports, etc., they got the total number of studies down to nine. Of this, two studies were excluded because of problems with the timelines of fluid administration, and three more were excluded because of missing necessary data. This resulted in four studies being included in the analysis. This author group also used the Newcastle Ottawa scale to evaluate the quality of these studies, and all the studies were scored between 7 and 9, which is quite good. These four studies yielded 261 total patients receiving the restricted fluids package and 310 receiving the surviving sepsis campaign recommended fluids administration. The number of patients were much more evenly distributed amongst the four studies, unlike the other meta-analysis where the volume of patients were really heavily weighted to one of the five papers. With this, 74 of the 261 patients in the restrictive fluid group died, and 82 of the 310 patients in the surviving sepsis campaign group died. The weighted odds ratio for death was significantly higher in the restrictive fluid group with a ratio of 1.81, and the confidence interval is between 1.13 and 2.89, and statistically significant. The force plot here shows that three of the four included studies again have confidence intervals that cross one, but by a much smaller degree than in the previous meta-analysis. As a result, this author group concludes that there's a paucity of evidence on this issue, but from what there is, adherence to the sepsis fluid recommendations from the surviving sepsis campaign, even in patients with heart failure, seems to be associated with a lower risk of in-hospital mortality. Okay, what do I take away from this? Well, we have only two meta-analyses. Both are fueled by few studies, and they're not fueled by randomized controlled trials. The first one is intriguing, as the mortality rates in both fluid groups are quite low, lower than most papers on sepsis in general. Also, I'm curious about the outlier paper that is included and really heavily influencing the meta-analysis results. However, even this one didn't find a statistically significant harm from giving the recommended fluids. The second meta-analysis has much more expected mortality rates in both arms, more symmetric patient enrollment numbers across the studies, and finds a statistically significant benefit for receiving sepsis fluids in line with the surviving sepsis campaign. However, this does not tell us about renal failure patients, and the number of patients enrolled in the second meta-analysis is small comparatively. For me, these studies, combined with Dr. Clements's expert belief that following the guidelines for fluid administration is the best course of action, is probably what I'm going to lean towards at the bedside when I work my next shift. But this issue is so important and one that is worthy of your attention outside of the moment you have to make the decisions. And so I encourage you to look at the literature I'm citing and do your own lit search to see if you find something else. Okay, let's get back to the discussion with Casey. So, so that's a separate question. The, the clinical need and what is appropriate is under debate. But what's not under debate is what CMS says we need to do and the tools that we have to um, justify when we're not doing that. And it, again, it's very, very, very specific in the language. And so um, anything that, our, that your institution can do to make that easier through boilerplate language, through macros, through systems in place within electronic medical record, will pay dividends. Um, so I, I, would, I would highly recommend that. Now that's from the physician side on what we can do with documentation, but there are things um, that are common pitfalls in the systems that are not necessarily the doctor's fault. Um, and so we got so good at giving antibiotics quickly in this situation after blood cultures are drawn. For a while, it looked like we gave antibiotics 30 seconds before the blood culture was drawn 
a lot. So, so why is that? Well, when the nurse or the phlebotomist, whoever is drawing blood cultures, it has the timestamp has to get registered into the computer for when that says that that blood culture has been done. But there is a time difference between when the needle leaves the patient and when that timestamp happens. And so if you're really, really good, you actually can fail this metric because you can draw the blood cultures, boom, give the antibiotic, then scan the blood cultures, and it looks like the antibiotics were beforehand, which is a, a fail according to SEP1. So um, we've run into that. Uh, and then the other common pitfall is not rechecking the lactate. So lactate between two and four, uh, and I don't want to say that mid-range lactates have no use in sepsis. There is some evidence that if you have hypotension and a lactate greater than 2.5, that your outcomes are somewhat worse than if that lactate wasn't above 2.5. Um, but there's really not evidence of what to do between two and four. And so I, we've saw this with early goal-directed therapy. The places that we fell down are the places that we don't believe in. We don't believe it's helpful to the patient. And so we see the same thing here. So if somebody has a lactate of 2.1 and they're going to come back around and poke that patient again and the patient's you know, already full of holes from the tubes and things we put in. And it's really easy to say, that don't worry about it. Don't, don't draw that lactate. Um, and we've gotten in a habit of that maybe sometimes. And so that is a common pitfall in this. And, and it's one of those things that may not add a lot of value to the patient's care. Certainly if they recheck it and it's way up, like that's an important clinical factor. But um, uh, if it may not add a ton beyond that, um, uh, but we're doing it to meet the metric. It'll add value to the patients in 2026. It will add, <laughs> absolutely, and to the hospitals and to because our- without it, hospitals, many hospitals, unlike ours, are going to lose funding and be able to provide less services to the communities. Right, exactly. And I know why CMS is doing this. I mean, sepsis, number one, is the most common reason that people die in hospitals. Uh, there's some really good evidence from Kaiser Permanente, as well as the National Inpatient Survey, which would say, based on coding, it looked, you know, 35 to 37% of people dying in hospitals is due to sepsis. But when you review the charts, it's actually far more than that. It's another 20% on top of that. And so it's a major morbidity and or major mortality for these patients. And from a cost point of view, it is the most expensive thing that we do in our hospitals. Um, and, and the data varies. Um, it's the, you know, in the most data, most up-to-date data I've seen was way back in 2017. And we we're spending $38 billion a year on sepsis care in this country. Um, I've seen, um, some estimates since then and it's gone up. So, um, we need to do something to try to improve that quality and curb that cost. And if you, if you get people better quicker, it's cheaper. This all makes sense, but I'm envisioning that a Finch chart is one of these randomly 20 selected charts and it's it's like very Hunger Games. Like my chart pops up. I was having kind of a rough evening. I was dealing with another patient and I didn't hit my thing and suddenly Mayo's real angry. Yours. Yeah, Mayo's very upset. Well, <laughs> Dr. Finch, now that you mention it, I have right in front of me. No, I'm just oh. <laughs> But uh, from uh, from a Hunger Games point of view, I think that's pretty funny. So uh, uh, may the odds be yeah, that's the that. <laughs> may the odds that my chart isn't one of the twenty. That's what I'm looking forward to. What you were mentioning about how we could fail the blood culture antibiotic me measure is just I can picture it so vividly in my mind for our system. What can we do to help advocate in these situations as a department? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I will say, I've worked on. I think seven different system-wide sepsis quality improvement initiatives. Uh, and when we get into those rooms, it's a bunch of doctors sitting around talking about what we're going to order. Are we going to use order sets? Are we going to, uh, how are we going to respond to this? What do we think are the appropriate, um, you know, ways to push fluids, et cetera. But this you absolutely requires nursing and ancillary services to be involved. And so you need to get nursing on board for this. So I'm working with them right now to say like, okay, let's, number one, we have to prioritize care of these patients. In 2024, all of us are boarding patients. We have patients coming out the gills. We have hugely long wait times. The biggest threat that I see right now is not that we're going to give a little bit too little fluid or retake like that. The biggest threat that I see is that the person with the fever who we don't know has um, you know, kidney failure yet, 
is sitting in the waiting room for two and a half hours, and then when they get rooms, guess what? You got 29 minutes to identify it and, and get your, um, your stuff done because they had a fever and tachycardia when they triaged in, so that's when it started. Um, and so we have to get nursing on board everywhere with this, um, and they're so important to this, both to recognize this um, right from a triage standpoint and to prioritize the care of those patients, to get those patients roomed, um, to get this care started. And, you know, when we order a 30 milliliter per kilogram bolus of lactated ringers, it's not dripped in at 500 mils an hour. Um, you know, they need to be right there. And some of the best nurses that we, that I've seen here, like they say, I, I tell them, we're going to pull the trigger. We're going to do the sepsis, you know, bundle on this person. And they get out the LR, they label the, the bags. They have them sitting right at the bedside, one, two, three. Um, they, you know, and, and they're, they're, when they prioritize it, that's when this goes well. And so I think that there's a huge nursing component to this. Yeah. I was imagining maybe a future state where there's some kind of light bulb in the room that says the cultures have been scanned. Um, a team repels out of the ceiling. Well, some places people have yeah. done that, <laughs> right? Yeah. We did. We've tried it. It's we, they called it the sepsis response team, and uh, and there's a couple of different ways to do it. The sepsis response team probably isn't super helpful, uh, and and maybe it will be for others. Were there, some, were there badges? Though? There, <laughs> you know, a cape, some <laughs> yeah. envisioning capes. Um, but no, the sepsis response team wasn't super helpful because by the time they're deployed. The, that means you've already recognized illness unless you're doing um, screening for sepsis. And that's a whole other discussion. Many sepsis screens uh, are not particularly helpful for clinical care because the signal to noise ratio is just awful. We, we had pretty much the most specific sepsis, quote, sniffer, unquote, that had been developed here. And it's, we still figured out that it went off between 10 and 12 times for each one person that you needed to know it on. And most of the time, they already knew that the person was septic. And so the sepsis response team doesn't make it as much sense. I will say that uh, our colleagues in Mayo Clinic Florida have a really cool system um, where they have a sepsis coordinating nurse. It's got some fancy acronym title I can't remember, a sepsis reassessment nurse. And so it, their job is, is that when that sepsis care is initiated, or initiated, they then follow up at intervals to make sure that the things are going or that the things got done on the floor in the hospital, not the emergency department so much. And that makes a lot of sense to me because that with competing uh, interests or competing priorities, they, they, this that helps keep the people from falling through the cracks. And that's been very successful right. for them. I know you won't believe this, but an hour has already passed. We're having so much fun untangling this complex web of sepsis, how it's evolved, where it started, where we're going. And yet there's another hour of amazing content that we are saving to release at another time. We figure that having two hours of this at one shot is probably more than most of us can digest. So do me a favor, come back for part two when we release it and take your time to digest part one. Check out the show notes for more additional content and read some of the literature behind some of this. We're also including some of the studies that compare the different prognostic scores like SOFA and QSOFA and SIRS so you can take a deeper dive into them. But again, come back and listen to part two with Dr. Casey Clements. I promise there's a whole hour full of amazing more content in terms of what tests to order, what drugs to give, how to approach refractory hypotension, and so much more. Thank you for joining for this chapter of Always on EM. We'll catch you next time. The Always On EM Podcast, hosted by Alex Finch and Vank Bellamconda.